0: You know, you're a funny church. When I was facing this way, I nudged Laura. I was like, I don't don't know if anybody's like here. Like maybe alarms didn't go off this morning. I mean, I know we're mostly like college age, but come on. And then I turn around y'all are here. So it's like, good morning. Glad to see you. My name is Matt, one of the staff members here. Uh, Pleasure to be opening the word with you this morning as we continue on in our series uh, through the foundations of Vertical Church. And you know, one of... uh, One of my flights back from the Middle East, I was working with some missions teams several years ago over in the Middle East, and on one of the flights back, I distinctly remember somewhere over the Atlantic thinking, wow, that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. I was expecting a place that was disorganized, discouraging, maybe a place that that needed some help, and that I would go home maybe to a place to find some rest and rejuvenation, And I don't know if you've experienced this, I think you probably have, things aren't often as they seem, are they? The places that we think are going to be discouraging and disorganized and a problem and a mess, they turn out to be an oasis, and the places that you think are safe and growing and alive end up being a little dead. You see, in the circles that we tend to run in, we often equate persecution with hardship when it comes to being a Christian. Perhaps we think that Christians living in nations like China, Turkey, Iraq under ISIS, Cuba under Castro, all these Christians have much harder times being a Christian due to the hostility of their environments. Perhaps we think that those poor Christians, we pity them. That they don't have a building like this where they can freely gather and sing songs of praise and have fellowship and enjoy one another's company. Those poor, poor Christians. However, I say this when you have an opportunity to live life with Christians that live under persecution or threat of violence from their governments, you begin to realize that the true threat to the church is not in persecution you begin to realize the true threat of the church resides somewhere else. And it's much more subtle and it's much more fatal than mere persecution. True danger as a Christian doesn't come from violence, it doesn't come from persecution, it doesn't come from threats or a government that opposes you. It's far more subtle and far more fatal. We're going to see this morning that true danger to the Christian and to the church isn't found in the persecution of the church, but from perversion within the church. This perversion leads to death, destruction, and to a word that we're going to become all too familiar with this morning, Ichabod. And so if you've been with us here the last few weeks, you know that we've been going through this series called Vertical Church as we examine some of the questions of why does church exist and why is a vertical church or a vertically-minded church different than the rest? Our first week together, we dove into the text from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 in a message that was titled, A Universal Longing. We learned that deep in the soul of every human being is a longing for transcendence, something beyond the physical realm. And we've learned that that deep longing is instilled in us by our Creator. Our second week, we focused on this singular distinction that sets us apart from every other human on earth. That singular distinction is that we know that God's glory alone can satisfy the longing in every human heart. And then finally, last week, Pastor Chris walked us through uh, Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 4, and an encounter that separates a vertically minded church from the rest. What is that encounter, you may ask? Well, you probably remember God coming to church. That's the encounter that separates a vertically minded church. It's not a bigger building, it's not more budget, it's not more programs, it's not more followers, but God. Coming to church. And so these are the attributes that we saw that make a vertically minded church so different. So, throughout the last few weeks, we've seen what works and what sets apart a vertically minded church. A vertically minded church has a universal longing for the transcendence that leads us to becoming distinctly different as we find that God's glory alone can satisfy. And listen, just like life without God isn't life at all, church without God is not church at all. And listen, church, we will be different as long as we cling to these truths. The second that we long for creation, not the creator, we lose our transcendence. As soon as our distinction is indistinguishable than the world, we've lost our satisfaction. And as soon as the weekly encounter is perverted to be made about us and our preferences rather than God and his glory, we have lost his glory, Ichabod. This morning, we're going to look at a church which has lost these characteristics, A church that God's glory is so distant from, it can hardly be recognized. Give your Bibles, and I hope you do. Go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, as we look at a church this morning that we're titling the Church of Ichabod. Now, what does Ichabod mean? You're asking the question. This is not a household name. Hopefully, it's not on your short list of names for future children. Let me explain Ichabod for you. The word Kabod—it's a Hebrew word from the Old Testament. It is a word that means glory or glorious. This is the same word that Moses cried out to God in in Exodus chapter three: "Show me your glory." But Ichabod—Hebrews interesting. One little addition of a letter before this word changes its entire meaning from glory or glorious to no glory. The glory has departed. And I'm telling you, the church in Sardis that we're going to look at this morning is a church with no glory. While you're turning, I want to walk us back through a story. So you're turning to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. There's a story that I think correlates pretty well with this, where we actually see the word Ichabod come into, uh, into existence in our Bibles. The story's back in First Samuel chapter 4. Now, First and Second Samuel, they're, they're typically, it's, it's one book split into two parts. It's the history of Israel coming out of the time of the judges. So we've had 300 years under the judges of Israel, and we're about to lead towards the first king of Israel because Israel wants to be like everybody else and have a king. If we were to think back through the book of Judges, and the, the history of Israel, it's really a history of epic failures. And when I say epic, I mean epic. And we're going to see one of the most epic of the epic failures this morning. We've got this pattern of disobedience and then there's oppression by their enemies and then there's repentance and calling out to God for forgiveness and then God's merciful intervention through a judge and then they have victory over their enemies but sooner or later they repeat the cycle and they slide right back into disobedience in this dizzying cycle of repetition. The time of judges can really be summarized this way. Look at the screen. When the people of God are not told the works of God. They lose the wonder of God, and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar to anyone this morning? Do we see that in our culture, perhaps? So in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, we witness this the cycle of disobedience, yet another cycle. So Eli, he's the current judge. He's the second to the last judge of Israel. Samuel, the last judge of Israel, and the first of the prophets, the great prophets. He comes uh, into, he's born in the first chapter of 1 Samuel. And then we get to Eli. So Eli's the current judge, right? Eli has two boneheaded sons. These two sons, as we see in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, says this, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Let me give you a bit of a brief summary of what these young guys are doing. These boys, Hippophany and Phinehas, were gorging themselves on the meat that was meant to be sacrificed to the Lord. And they were treating the offering of the Lord with contempt. You can see all this in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, not making this up. They cheated on their wives on the steps, the entrance to the tent of meeting with the servants who were attending to the tent of meeting. Pretty disgusting stuff is happening. And these men claimed to be servants of the Lord whom they didn't know. And when they were approached by their father, Eli, and called to repentance at the end of chapter 2, they say, no, they failed to repent. The leaders of Israel had perverted the house of the Lord for their own benefit and judgment was about to take place. Saying, how is this happening? How do God's people and God's leaders do this? Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel, he was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Eli, the father of these two sons who were desecrating the temple or the tabernacle. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. The word of the Lord was rare in the house of the Lord. That's Houston, we have a problem. God's glory has departed and we're about to see what happens to a place that claims God's presence and yet denies God's glory. Chapter 3, if you're looking along, you can see that Samuel, this is the vision that he gets and he doesn't know what's happening. There's this voice and he goes to Eli, he's like, you called for me? Eli's like, no. And sooner or later, Eli figured out, wow, he's getting a vision from the Lord, you should listen. So he gets this vision and it's not something that Eli is going to like because the vision is Eli, I'm going to destroy your household. I'm going to punish you. You are desecrating the house of the Lord, and you will not repent. Your sons will not repent. I will wipe you. You will no longer be a judge, nor your household. So this happens in chapter 3. And then chapter 4, Israel gets this idea, let's go against our enemies, the Philistines. Let's take an army out. So they take an army out. They get their butts kicked. 4,000 of them die before they realize, hey, maybe, you know, that Ark of the Covenant where God's glory Apparently, rests. Like, maybe we should go fetch that, is the the language that they use. Let's go fetch the ark, as if it's some sort of good luck charm. So they go fetch the ark, and the ark comes to the battlefield. And then they lose 35,000 or 30,000 more soldiers. They get completely defeated. The sons of Eli die. The ark is captured right? This is a bad deal. And then all of this news gets back to the city and back to Eli, where Eli, who's been himself gorging on the offerings of the Lord, is a little bit overweight. He falls out of his chair, breaks his neck, and he dies. I'm not making this up. And then we get a very sad scene. One of these sons of Eli, Phinehas, had a pregnant wife. And when news of her father-in-law and her husband, Reacher, and her brother-in-law, that they've all died. The army of Israel is defeated, but more importantly, as the text says, twice the ark of the Lord had been captured. She went into labor prematurely, gave birth to a boy, but before she died, she named him Ichabod. The glory has departed God's people. You're saying, what on earth does this have to do with a New Testament church and in Revelation and us today? Look at me, or look, look to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 with me as we come to a church. That I think we'll see in a moment has Ichabod written all over it. You know, I imagine that not too many years before, this was a vibrant church. This church had a history. This church was known as a church that was alive, but we're going to see that something's happened in just a few short years, perhaps, Ichabod has been written on the front sign of this church, and just as easily as it is to transition from Kabod, God's glory, to Ichabod, no glory, a church that is about God's glory can transition to a church that has no glory. So let's look at the text in Revelation chapter 3, picking up with me in verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come to you like a thief in the night, or like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not spoiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Lord, as we open your word, as we we dive into your scripture here, this message to this church, but that we're encouraged to have an ear and listen to what the Spirit has said to this church. May we not pass by this idly. Amen. So this morning, we're going to look at four different characteristics of a church that has Ichabod stamped on its welcome sign on the front. And hopefully, we're going to be able to take away some tips on how we can avoid becoming a church that is the same. So the first thing we noticed back in the text Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's, that's, I mean, there's a lot in that, but think this. God, Jesus Christ, holds everything in his hands. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. How many of you care about your reputation? Are there are a few? Okay, fair. So this church's reputation is different It has a reversed reputation. It has a reputation of being alive, but it is dead. I remember when uh, when Laura and I were kind of sensing that the Lord was calling us away from Casper, Wyoming. We didn't know where yet. We had a desire to be in the Midwest, the land flowing with milk and honey. (laughs) At least from June to August (laughs) until there's snow. Anyway, so... We were looking at some different churches. I remember looking at one church's website that, that was looking for a pastor, and uh, I went to the page of the past, and the page of the past was the page that had the most uh, effort put into it on this church's website. And it was, it was a wonderful thing to read 50 years, or it was actually like 100 years of history, wonderful church, but I couldn't help but wonder, are they clinging to what God has done 50 years ago, but not maybe experiencing what God's doing right now? And so many churches are like that. They live in the past. They live in what God did 50 years ago with their parents and their grandparents, as if that is their triumph. And you have to ask the question, what's happening right now? It's like going on somebody's LinkedIn profile. And seeing all of their past accomplishments, all of their degrees, all of this, but what are they doing now? Or maybe a little bit closer to home, a dating profile, right? You've got all of this picture from, you know, 50 years ago, but you better ask the question, what do you look like now? Right? And we have churches everywhere living in the past. They have a reputation of being alive, but they are dead. I heard it said once that the unfortunate cycle of a church typically runs like this it begins with a man, it becomes a movement, and if you're not careful, it will soon be a monument. The church of Sardis is a monument of a church. They have a reputation of being alive, but they are dead. They may know the practices of church. Just like the sons of Eli who were servants in the house of the Lord knew the practices of being servants in the house of the Lord, but they did not know the Lord. It's really sad when you see this happen to churches. When you see tradition trump transformation. When you see people frozen in the chairs out of fear for stepping out in faith. Or you see laziness leading to ignoring God's leading. And the scariest thing is this can happen in a moment. Now, sure, we can uh, we can pretend that couldn't happen here. We could walk out these doors, and we could all walk five minutes in five directions. And we would find a church that had a reputation of being alive somewhere out there. But the second we look inside, we'd realize that this church is too busy, too self-absorbed, too culturally cautious, too far from God's word, and too dead in their gospel culture that Jesus wouldn't even recognize them as a church. We could do that. I mean, our churches in our world today look like judges. Israel under the time of the judges, repeating this cycle over and over again. Here we go, another cultural phenomenon. Entire churches, denominations lie dead this morning. They have reversed reputations. It's easy to recognize that, but I would tell you this, the biggest shame is right here. The biggest shame is right here. Because the problem is, if we're honest, our reputation is reversed. Just like Sardis, isn't it? It's always been here. As long as you've been here, I've been here, Pastor Chris has been here, we have a reversed reputation. It may not be as bad as 1 Samuel, but the perversion of God's house is here because we are far too quickly drawn to self-sufficiency. It's in my heart. It's in your heart. And before we know it, we who make up and comprise this church, it'll be in the church. So, what do we do when we wake up and we realize that our reputation as Christians is the reverse of what's reality? What do we do when we realize that our lives don't look on the outside as they do on the inside? Well, glad you asked. Let's read on. Chapter 3, verse 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So what do we do when we wake up and we realize that the reality of our hearts is not what we represent to the world? our reputation is reversed. We need revival. We need radical revival. We need resuscitated. Our hearts are dead. And we don't just need a blip. We need life. And that life comes from one place. And that's through Jesus Christ. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. I was talking to uh, our elders this last week, and I I admitted I I read a passage, I think I have it up on the screen, from Acts chapter uh, chapter 20, verse 28, where it says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Now, I've read, this is Paul's words to the church of Ephesus. These are some of his last words. I've read this, I don't know, a hundred times. I have never really realized the importance of those first words. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the holy spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of god which he obtained with his blood you know as a leader as a parent as a as a someone who cares for somebody else it's far too easy to put all of our attention on those that god has put in our care and neglect paying attention to our own heart it's easy for us to look outside and say oh these poor other churches and we neglect to look here in our own heart. Pay careful attention to ourselves. Be alert. Wake up. And this is something Jesus commanded us all today. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. The church in Sardis is dead, decaying, and it's about to disappear if they don't wake up. This thing's past life support. It needs revival. Revival. We also see that the text says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Do you ever feel that way for the stuff that you do? You have a hard time finishing, right? Maybe like your works, they disappear as fast as that snow on Friday disappeared by noon. We would call those kickoff Christians and kickoff churches. I'm with you until the game kicks off at noon, and we're here for the ministry kickoff. That's exciting, but then we peter out. We never finish what we start, right? We're always looking for something new new ministry, new initiative, new vision, new, 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 yet nothing complete. I think that's exactly what the church in Sardis is doing. They're not completing anything that they start. They need radical revival. They cannot find life on their own, they need revival. So a church that recognizes that their reputation doesn't match the reality needs to wake up, needs to strengthen what remains. We need radical revival, but then the verse continues. The text continues. Pick up with me in verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. I think he's talking about their salvation. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour in which I come against you. So what else is a church whose reputation isn't their reality need? Well, we've seen we need revival. We need to be resuscitated, but now we are in need of repentance. We need real repentance. And I don't mean like Twitter repentance. I don't mean like, yeah, I'll share this part and this part but not that part. Just enough to, you know, make yourself appear as a repentant Christian. Real repentance. Remember back with me to 1 Samuel in this story of the sons of Eli. When Eli heard that they had done all of these evil things in the house of the Lord, he came to his sons and called them to repentance. We see this in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. But they would not listen to the voice of their father. Listen, the Lord is slow to anger. You read in the text in 2 Samuel, their time was up, their destruction was coming. The Lord had decided they have had opportunity after opportunity to repent, and they haven't. Their time is up. Listen, the text says the entire countryside was talking about their sin. This wasn't hidden. There was probably calls to repentance all day long. Or maybe everybody was just stoned dead in their sin and had no clue that this was actually wrong. Regardless, they had a call, they had a chance, and they refused. I want to read for you Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. This is how patient and long-bearing the Lord is. This is how slow to anger He is. Read this. Yet, not, yet even now... Declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend, there's our word from last week, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Rend your hearts and not your garments. There's no doubt in my mind that the church in Sardis had already been called to repent. And they missed it over and over again. And so now Jesus is ready to be the judge. Jesus says, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour that I come against you. This thief in the night reference isn't to Jesus' second coming. I don't think anybody in the church of Sardis would miss this. You may, because we don't know Sardis, right? We don't know what it was. So Sardis was a fortress city in Asia Minor. This is a capital city of a region, this is an epic fortress. Like, we're talking 1,000 feet above the surrounding plains, walls that were so impenetrable. There's only one way in and out of this city. It claimed to be an impenetrable city. They were so prideful that the king of this city went up against the Persians. It's not a good thing to do in the 500s BC. You get your butt kicked when you go against the Persians. So the Persians chase the king back, and guess what happens? What happens? They don't go on a frontal assault. No, the king of Persia says, you know what? I'm smarter than that. I'm gonna get a thief. I'm gonna get someone who's really good at rock climbing. And at night, they're gonna scale up the side of the back of this fortress and he's gonna walk over to the front gate and open it. We'll see if that works. We'll give that a shot. Well, it worked. Why? Because they had nobody on the wall. They were so proud of their heritage, their impenetrability. They had no one. Historians say if one guard was on the wall, the city would have been saved. There was no way the Persians could have gotten in. And yet one thief comes up and opens a gate because they were not paying attention to their city. And so I think the words to the church in Sardis is the same. Set a guard. Pay attention. Watch yourselves, vertical church, lest we become the same. You know, for many of us, if we've grown up in Christianity, I'm going to say this, and I think this is going to sound familiar to you too, we've become professionals at fortifying our hearts. We let out just enough to make us look like we're repentant Christians, and yet the true gate to our heart is locked and sealed. And we don't let that go. Going back to Joel, we need to rend our Hearts, not our garments. As so we say just enough in meetings, we say just enough on social media to make people think that we're repentant Christians. But Joel says, God says through Joel, the prophet, it's not on the outside that he wants. It's our hearts. Pay careful attention to your own hearts, brother and sister, lest we too become like Ichabod. And together, us Ichabod Christians comprise an Ichabod church. He says, remember the gospel, who you were before Christ, who you are now, and repent. You know, it's so easy to get discouraged, isn't it? You know, we walk around a city that's full of churches that are opening their doors to celebrate everything and in their effort to be all-inclusive, they're actually welcoming no one, especially not Jesus, because everyone knows that they are dead. Churches all throughout St. Paul, all throughout America, have slapped the Ichabod filter on their Facebook profile and they're proud of it. They celebrate that there is no glory here. So it's easy to get discouraged, and I have to ask the question, is there any hope for a church like Sardis, like Ichabod, like America? Let's read verses 4 through 6. Yet. (laughs) You have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not spoiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I have never, or I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Verse six He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So praise God that even in a church like Sardis, a nation like Israel, They have Ichabod stamped on their passports and on their church signs. There's still a remnant. There's hope in a righteous remnant. There are those who have yet to soil their garments. The imagery here refers to those who haven't soiled the purity of their Christian lives by falling into sin. I don't mean just a single temptation, oops, oops. I mean habitual, buying in, celebrating sin. There are a few that have not. You see, the church in Sardis has become so indistinguishable from the culture and their surroundings that they were almost not even recognized as believers. But there was a remnant. This remnant was under great pressure, but they remained faithful. And Jesus promises that those who have remained faithful that he will replace their garments with robes of white. This imagery is used all throughout Revelation as those who have been redeemed and clothed in the redemption that is brought only by the blood of the Lamb. The second part of verse 5, if you look at it, can be a little bit problematic for our interpretation. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. A couple things. There's evidence that Cities in ancient culture like this, when somebody died, they would, or if they were, they were being executed, put to death, they would, as a sign of almost torture, erase their name from the records of the city. That's one thing you can be thinking about here. But the best I can do to walk us through this, like some of you seminary students and theologians out there are like, wait a second, I don't think we could lose our salvation here. What does this mean? The best I can do without going into hours of discussion on this is this. I want to encourage you not to look at this statement as a threat, but rather as a promise. Don't look at this as a threat. Look at this as a promise. Think about our world today. Our world may erase you. Our world may cancel you for standing firm in the teachings of Christ. But God will never He promises never to remove the names of those who are called by his name and received his salvation. Nothing can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Nothing can snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says in John chapter 10. Jesus will not cancel you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, we hear that the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. I'm telling you, if God guarantees it, it's sure to happen. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So to those who are conquerors through the blood of Christ, who have been clothed in garments and not soiled in the perversion that is rampant in their church, Jesus promises eternal glory. What an amazing promise that is. And I think that promise will just get more beautiful the longer we live, church. The world threatens you, the world may cancel you, the world may say, if you don't adopt our morality, if you don't soil your clothes and our culture, we're going to get rid of you, we're going to expel you, we may even kill you. No matter the threat, God's promise remains, no one can snatch you out of his hands. And so we come to verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches in vertical church, may we be attentive to what we have read this morning. Because Ichabod is never far off. There's churches all throughout our world, all throughout our city, that have Ichabod stamped on them. And God, help us not be a church of Ichabod, where his glory has departed. And if you don't think it can happen here, think again. Every single church around us that has Ichabod stamped on it, probably didn't think it would happen there either. Let us pay careful attention to our hearts. May we recognize that our our reputation is likely different from the reality. We desperately need daily revival. May we be quick to repent and may we find hope, not in our culture, not in our surroundings, but in the promise of Jesus Christ. So I want to close where we started sitting on an airplane on our way back from the Middle East, thinking, that wasn't as bad as I thought. The part of the world where being a Christian is supposed to be so difficult, so destructive, I realized that it wasn't the Christians and the churches facing persecution that were under threat, but the ones that would welcome me when I landed in Chicago in the American church. Dr. Vance Havner said this about a hundred years ago about America. He said, Satan is not fighting our churches. He's joining them. He does more harm by sowing tares than by pulling up wheat. And he accomplishes more by intimidation than by outright opposition. You see, Ichabod didn't come to Israel because they lost a battle or they lost an ark or it didn't come to Sardis because, you know, they were persecuted. No, they lost the ark, they lost the battle, they lost their church because they lost God's glory. God's glory departed because they perverted the house of the Lord. They failed to keep watch over their own hearts. And before they knew it, they were like the rest of the world. But keep hope. There is a remnant. And for those who recognize our desperate need for God's glory to be manifest here at Vertical Church, in our homes, and in our lives, continue to hold fast to the hope that is in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, as uh, as challenging as it can be, Lord. And there are so many directions to go with this, but Lord, I thank you for drawing us to this passage and revelation. Lord, I pray for churches like Sardis, that are so lost, so confused.